all the accounts the accounts say that he waited for a quarter mile further they keep going quarter mile past where he's supposed to give the signal mm. perhaps it's because he's looking at all these women and children ahead of him he finally turns his horse around and looks back at the men and only then does he shout halt and the word halt was the signal for the killing to begin John D. Lee alone has, I mean, this was years ago. He had over 100,000 descendants. Probably it's up to over 200,000 descendants. So one of these 50 to 60 men has that many descendants. So I kind of ballparked it. There were probably more than a million people alive today whose ancestors participated in this. Yeah, Mormon church. She really encouraged genealogy. I am doing it. (laughs) I am the descendant of a, let's just say murderer. Let's just... All right, genealogy, I'm doing it, and I'm not happy about the results. Welcome back to the Nuance Ho YouTube channel slash the Mormon History Hoedown. I am Kara Burrell. Sometimes I go by Nuance Ho, and sometimes I get to be lucky enough to be friends with really amazing authors, historians, just basically directors of signature (laughs) books publishings and authors slash co-authors of real page turners like vengeance is mine so welcome back to our multi-part series on this fantastic book that you wrote barbara with of course the help of richard e turley jr vengeance is mine available wherever books are sold and also in audible form barbara jones brown thanks for coming back on the podcast thanks kara thanks for having me back Do we like long-winded intros or do we not? (laughs) Vote in the comments. (laughs) That wasn't that long-winded. Well, as you guys know, I am so lucky to be sitting down here with historian Barbara Jones-Brown as we talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. We've done two episodes already that are available as a podcast under the Mormon History Hoedown and on my YouTube channel. So if you have not watched those before, We did an episode about blood atonement and just this violent rhetoric as it relates to the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and then also a lot of the political influences and so many different people, factors, alliances that all led up to the Mountain Meadows Massacre, this really horrible, violent atrocity that occurred in 1857. On September 11th, 1857. I just like to quiz you if you knew what year it was. I (laughs) think I remember that. (laughs) So as much as I try to bring more lulls in the sex Mormon space, I also try to bring on people like Barbara to tell us about impactful things that happened in Mormon history and U.S. history and go over the really intense details of these stories that really should be out there. People should be more knowledgeable about. But for this episode, we are going to get into a lot more of the, I don't know, gruesome factor and things that you might need to take a moment to practice some some self-care and some breathing work because we're going to talk about the massacre itself. And as we were talking about, what could possibly have led these seemingly otherwise sane Mormons, hold your laughter, to act so insanely violently against this one group of immigrants from Arkansas slaughtering 100, 120. Yeah, roughly 100 is what we found. Yeah. Of innocent men, women, and children who truly did not do anything 
against them. So yeah, in the first two episodes, as you mentioned, we talked about the political conflict that's going on between the federal government and the people of Utah Territory at the time, and also the religious factors that are leading to a culture of um, violent rhetoric and some violence. So we talked about the Mormon Reformation of 1856 and 1857 and the doctrine of blood atonement. So if people want to get more of that background, we encourage you to watch the first two episodes here. Um, so today we'll talk about uh, why if, as I mentioned again in the first two episodes, why if several companies, immigrant companies, came under attack, had their cattle raided between September 7th and October 3rd, 1857, why was it that this one company is wiped out and massacred when, in the cases of the other companies, um, we were able to document one emigrant being killed, but uh, basically there was no killing of these other emigrants, immigrant companies. What happened to this one that led to this? Yeah. The so immigrants. what was supposed to be just a cattle raid, just running off the cattle, um, turned into murder because um, some of the emigrants were awakened and were uh, got out their guns and started firing on the people who were taking their cattle and their, the marauders. So some of the attackers are killed. Um, we know of two who are killed, and then the several immigrants are killed in that initial, what was supposed to be just a cattle raid. So the immigrants circle their wagons, and then all of a sudden, you've got murder on your hands. And then some of the... Um, Militiamen that are riding back to Cedar City to report what happened to Isaac Haight, they come across two emigrant men who were rounding up uh, stray cattle. They don't know what's happened. They fire on them, the militiamen, thinking they need to contain the situation. One of them, named William Aiden, is murdered. The other gets back into the corral, and then he's he can tell everybody inside the corral that... It's getting are out involved of in way out of hand. This cattle raiding and in these murders now. Mm -hmm. And with Brigham Young's eventual goal of exactly what to backfired. Yeah, yeah, he was hoping through this strategy and through all of his policies to win public opinion for the Mormons against the President of the United States and win Congress's opinion for the men, the Mormons against the president of the United States, James Buchanan, who had sent an army against U.S. citizens. But ultimately, the massacre would cast a very dark shadow on Brigham Young and his people for generations to come. Mm -hmm. Sure wish that prophet, seer, and revelator could have prophesied, saw, or revelated not to do any of those things that we have to unfortunately read about in our history books and cry over in podcasts like this. What happened is um, Indian missionaries, Latter-day Saint missionaries to the Indians were encouraged to lead local tribes, local Indians to participate in raiding these cattle companies. And so that is certainly the case of what happened in at the Mountain Meadows, which is about 40 minutes north of St. George, Utah today. It's a Highland Valley. And a company from Arkansas were encamped there. They were on the trail heading for California. They were trailing a large herd of cattle. And they're encamped uh, near a spring at the Mountain Meadows when in the early morning hours of September 7th, 7th 
On Monday morning, they are initially attacked. And John D. Lee was a, a federal agent to the Paiute tribe at Ash Creek near Harmony, where he lived. And he leads a number of them there to the Mountain Meadows. But something goes wrong. Instead of just raiding the cattle, running off the cattle, uh, the emigrants, they are awakened and they start firing on their attackers. They kill a couple of Native Americans and they quickly encircle their wagons and start digging in. And meanwhile, about 7 to 12, there's different accounts, but several emigrants are killed in that initial attack. So now all of a sudden you have murder. So the emigrants circle their wagons and they dig in, they entrench themselves inside. What happened is two of the Mormon militiamen who were there at the meadows, they see what's happened. They didn't just run off the cattle. These immigrants are dug in now and they're not going anywhere. And again, people have been murdered already. So two militiamen named uh, Bill Stewart, William Stewart, and Joel White, they start riding back from the mountain meadows, riding back to Cedar City, Utah, to report to the state president of Cedar City named Isaac Haight. He's also a militia major, and he's also the mayor of Cedar City. So he's the most powerful man in Cedar City. And remind listeners how Isaac Haight plays into the story from the last episode. Sure. So I was talking about how powerful he was uh, there in Cedar City, and we found that in August of 1857, he is writing Brigham Young about uh, blood atoning, the blood atonement of a man named Rasmus Anderson, who who had been engaged in repeated adultery uh, against his, or what we would call sexual assault today, frankly, mm-hmm. against his stepdaughter, who was only 11 years old. So time. he is the big man of he Cedar City. big man. And he's City. like, we have got some really underage hanky-panky going on over here. Yeah. Brigham Young, what should I do with this guy? Yeah. And um, he writes Brigham Young that I sent him to California, which is a euphemism for had him killed. And then the, through other accounts, we know that it was a case of blood atonement. That he, the Rasmus Anderson, offered himself up to atone for his sins by offering his own blood. So there's all kinds of violent rhetoric coming out of yeah. Brigham Young. There's people who are acting on it, acting on mm-hmm. it, and yeah. and Isaac Hayde is one of them. And this again is August 1857, shortly before the Mount Meadows massacre. So that's just shows the mindset of the people the I mean the southern utah yeah. people that's a wholly different story no, okay the there's something wild wild west going on outside of the bounds of the united states where the mormons do not want to be invaded by the troops any yeah. longer as your book says feel to be oppressed no more fail to oppressed, be oppressed no, oppressed no more i was yeah. i was testing you to see if you knew you're on time <laughs> yeah they wanted to be oppressed no more not fail to be oppressed what did i say had, they had failed to be oppressed in. Uh, I don't have uh, enough brain cells to know what I said. Anyway, <laughs> cut that out. Anyway, the point is, yeah, they they submit to oppression no more, is what Brigham Young says. So, again, in the first two episodes, you you can listen and learn about all these strategies um, in which they attempt to keep the troops out of Utah territory, and they are able to do that for one winter. Okay, keep them out. So Isaac hate. Yes. So. Ironically, not a very loving guy. Go for it. <laughs> the two militiamen that 
witness this attack at the Mountain Meadows that turns deadly. And we're saying militiamen, meaning Mormon militiamen. Mormon yeah. militiamen. So yeah. at the time, um, there wasn't the the same kind of police force that existed in the United States. At the time, there were a lot of militias throughout the country. And so a militia was basically any um, man who was 18 or older um, was part of a militia. And they were there to kind of keep the peace. And then in 18, 1857, when they hear that federal troops are coming on, then they become more warlike and they're preparing for a possible war with the federal government. So that's what a militiaman was. And uh, yeah, again, anyone, any male 18 or over was just in the militia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so two Mormon militiamen who were there at the attack, they witness what's happened. And so they start riding back from the mountain meadows where these emigrants are now under siege. They've circled their wagons, literally. And they're going back to report to Isaac Haight what they've seen, that there has been some emigrants murdered and that they're dug in and they're not going anywhere. So on their way back, they come across two emigrant men were at a spring watering their horses. And these two emigrant men were not with the main company because they had been behind the main company rounding up stray cattle to bring them into the camp. So they're not aware of what has just transpired at the Mountain Meadows. Mm -hmm. They have no idea. They're just riding back uh, with the stray cattle. These two militiamen, they come upon these two emigrant men and they make the horrible decision that to contain the situation, they need to kill these two men, these two emigrant men. And again, those militiamen were Bill Stewart and Joel White. And they come across these two emigrant men. We know that one of them, his name was William Aiden. And they fire on both of the emigrant men. They kill William Aiden, but his companion, whose name we don't know, he gets away. And he starts riding towards the camp of the Mountain Meadows, again, not knowing that they're under siege, that they're under attack. The two militiamen, they follow him. They're not able to catch him. And then he's able to get inside the wagon corral where all of the besieged emigrants are inside. So now all of a sudden, everyone inside that wagon corral is a witness to the fact that Mormon militiamen are involved in this attack. It's not just... Indians. Mm. So um, the local people are worried. What do we do? How do we handle this? What's the right thing to do? Isaac Haight writes a letter to Brigham Young and he asks him, he explains what what has happened. We don't know how much detail he goes into because unfortunately that letter doesn't survive. It was either destroyed or lost. We know it existed because multiple people write about the fact that he wrote this letter. And then we have accounts of people who talk about seeing the express writer who's carrying this letter from Haight to Brigham Young passing through their towns. And they're writing about what the letter says. Mm. So it says something to the effect of um, some immigrants are under attack, the Mountain Meadows, um, probably says something about that they've been killed, some of them have been killed, and just asking what what we should do. So that's from Isaac Haight to, to Brigham Young, Young mm-hmm. big man on Southern Utah campus, to the big boy up in Salt Lake. Yes, to the biggest man, the most powerful man in Utah territory. Yeah, He asks him, do you like me? Check box yes or no. <laughs> that's probably what it said. 
that's it. <laughs> so, so this 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 express rider, his name's James Haslam. He's riding like crazy to bring it up to Salt Lake City. Um, he gets there. He arrives in Salt Lake City and arrives in Je- Young's office on September tenth, eighteen fifty-seven. Brigham Young reads the letter from Hay and says, "Can you stand the ride back?" even though you haven't been sleeping this whole time. And Haslam says, I think so. And he says, okay, go down, lie down for a little bit. And he composes a letter that Haslam then rides like the wind, bringing it back to Isaac. This was before the telegraph. Mm -hmm. So the only way that you could get things in Utah territory quickly was having an express rider. And I know you're more trained as a historian, not as an express writer uh, of horses, <laughs> but how long does that take? So it was about, so Hadlam leaves on Monday afternoon, early afternoon. He arrives on Thursday. So. Oh, and he hadn't slept the whole time? Yeah, he's not sleeping. Oh, yeah. My goodness. Yeah. I mean, maybe he was stopping to take a, he would change horses. As he went, you know, getting fresh horses to to ride up to Brigham Young. So maybe he slept a few minutes here. This is like we don't NASCAR know, of death. Yeah. <laughs> in 1857. Yeah. Like, whoa. Yeah. That is, this is, again, needs to be a movie. Yeah. I can just see I the music. It needs to be a movie. I can hear the, yeah. the composition of the writer. Right. The yeah. with yes. The, and then it goes to the, and it's silent and it's darkness. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, running, and, he, he and they're just a race into, against time here. He walks into Brigham Young's office downtown, and Brigham Young's in a meeting with people. You know, so the drama of him coming in, and you know, and it's all in the book. We 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 describe the drama, and you know, Haslam handing it to Young, and Young looks at it, looks up, says, "Can you stand the ride back?" And then um, they compose a letter to send back. So I'll tell you what's in the contents later for the dr- dr- drama of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Please do. Um, so that's happening. So meanwhile, the immigrants are under siege. There's two more attempted attacks made on them um, that are unsuccessful. I think it was three immigrant men. They leave the camp and they start heading north on foot, asking for help, looking for help. And um, as they're walking north towards the settlements, so in other words, towards Cedar City, which is the closest main settlement some other militiamen, now that they've received word that this is going on, they leave Cedar City, a group, a posse of militiamen, if you will. They come across these immigrant men. These immigrant men see them and they start, they beg for help. And these militiamen gun them down. So, and then they also sent another immigrant man. He leaves looking for help and he heads south on the trail towards California. He's just referred to as Young Baker. We believe that was George Baker, who um, had traveled this trail before to California. He knew where he was going. He was in his early 30s. And a young, a little girl says that, who survives the massacre, she says that her pa got away. And her pa was George Baker. So that's why we conclude it's George Baker. Mm. And the Bakers were one of the... um, the main, the the larger contingents of this combined company of immigrants. George Baker, uh, he is an immigrant man. He's a leader, one of the leaders of the train. Um, 
his father, Jack Baker, is also with the train, and they have the largest contingency of cattle in this company. Uh, another contingent is Alexander Fancher and his family. But it's important to um, not call it the Baker-Fancher train, as we have done for a long time, because there were many, um, several different contingencies of immigrants in this train. So what they called them historically was the Arkansas immigrants, and that's what we call them in our book. So these two immigrant men, or excuse me, these two militiamen who had just killed William Aiden and tried to kill his companion, they arrived back in Cedar City. They report to Isaac Haight that all of a sudden, all these immigrants in the middle of the um, encircled wagons now are witnesses to the fact that Mormons are involved in these attacks, white Mormons are involved in these attacks, and people have been murdered. So they start to worry, what are we going to do about this? Because we have the army coming from the east and the north, and if it gets word gets out to California that we've been involved in all these cattle raids and we've killed people, then we're just going to have people from California coming up too after us. Mm-hmm. So they are in that midst of war hysteria, they're very concerned. And then they also are thinking about there's another cattle company that's behind this one that has come under attack, and they are just a day or two behind this one from Arkansas. So they reason this other company's coming, they're coming along the same trail, and pretty soon they're going to pass through the mountain meadows, and then they're going to see what's going on, and then you're going to have even more witnesses. Mm-hmm. So Isaac hates hate and his advisors uh, John Higby, who's one of his counselors in the state presidency, um, John D. Lee, and Philip Klingensmith, who's the bishop in Cedar City, they seem to be the ringleaders. And they make the horrible decision that they need to wipe all the witnesses out, except for the children who were, quote, too young to tell tales. And they use that expression repeatedly. So on Thursday, September 10th, um, well, excuse me, on Wednesday, I think they leave late in the night on Wednesday, September 9th. Hate goes up to Parowan, Utah to consult with the state president there. His name is William Dame. And the reason why Hate needs to talk with Dame is Dame is the commander of the militia in southern Utah. So Hate needs Dame's permission to call out the full militia and carry out what he's proposing to do. He gets there to Parowan. Dame calls his council together to listen to what Hate is proposing, and Hate doesn't give him the whole story. He simply says that the Indians have the immigrants pinned down, and the council says, well, <clears throat> they vote. They take a vote, and they said, help them on their way. You know, send some interpreters and help the immigrants on their way. Wow. So that's what the initial decision is. But then hate pulls Dame aside. And there's one other man who witnesses this. And this is how we know that it happened. His name was William Barton. Anyways, hate pulls Dame aside. And he says, you don't have the full story. People have been murdered. And they know that we're involved. And if we let these people go on, all hell will break loose in California. And then we're really in trouble. And so Hate ignores the decision of his counsel and says, okay, do what you have to do. So he gives permission. 
Dame gives permission to Isaac Hayes, yeah. And so says, you have the William full force Dame. of my militia. Yeah, to- William Dame is the only one who outranks hate militarily in southern Utah. He's the commander of the Iron County Militia, is what it was called. Mm-hmm. And then this Barton guy is... He's witnessing it. Yeah, that is there. ear to the wall or something. <laughs> he's with the two of them. I'm again, I'm trying to write the movie for Hollywood oh, for it's us. So dramatic. And listen to this. They sit, it's called the Tan Bark Council or the Town Bark Meeting. A council, they use they use that term like we would say meeting. So it's called the Tan Bark Council, the three of them. And it's called that because they're sitting on some tanning bark. I guess you, you would use bark to tan leather. Yeah, it's stuff we don't understand. <laughs> but anyways, they're sitting on um a pile of tanning bark as they're talking outside. Yeah. Outside in the middle of the night. So hate goes back to Cedar city. He calls out militiamen. He calls out, we looked at those who go to the mountain meadows and most of them are leaders. They're, they're leaders of um, smaller units within the militia. And they all seem to be handpicked who was sent out from Cedar city. Going from Cedar City, there are about um, 40, roughly 40 men. Handpicked for the loosest morals of the bunch, maybe. Or just they're like leaders in the world. They're the leaders. Have the most rounds of ammunition. Most likely to commit murder, whatever. (laughs) When they filled out their application, they checked that box. Most likely likely to obey their militia leaders. Mm-hmm. Hate also calls out a man, a very young man named Nephi Johnson, to go. Nephi Johnson is a missionary to the Paiutes, and he's fluent in Paiute. He's 22 years old. Uh, Nephi Johnson says he doesn't want to go, but Hate called him out, and he had to obey orders. And was the story that the militiamen were given the liar one? This that is Hate really. Was- or they, did they know what they're signed up for? So I'm so glad we can deep dive and so we can have these kinds of con- conversations. So many of these men, militiamen, later say that hate told them he they were going out to um, help the immigrants who were under Indian attack, to save them from Indian attack. That's what a lot of them say. And I used to go, oh, I think that's that's just justifying or covering up on their part. But the more I studied it, the more I started thinking and the more sources I saw, the more I started to think that makes sense. That's how we got them to go. Like, like we were talking about, how would otherwise basic, just normal, decent people participate in the massacre of men, women, and children, you know? If he truly did say, hey, I'm sending you out there to go rescue the immigrants, then they're going to say, yeah, okay, yeah, let's go. Anyway, we're under siege what, from the Native Americans is the story that they're told. The story, yeah. So yeah. again, like you mentioned many times before, it's like you can sell anybody a story based on those old racist stereotypes. Of yeah, like, exactly. You know how the Indians yes, been bugging us. Yes, yes. We have to stand in solidarity with our white yeah, brothers and sisters. Who are under attack by the sense so anyways that's what a lot of them say that hate told them and i've come to believe that's that might be true but when they get to the meadows they're told something else mm-hmm. is what they say um so and they the- arrive at the mountain meadows in the middle like in the early morning hours of september 11th 
they go into camp, they get some a little bit of sleep, and then in the morning they're called together by um, John Higby. Again, that's Isaac Hate's counselor and the state presidency, and he's also a militia major. They're called together by Higby, and then they bring in John D. Lee, who's been leading it at the Mountain Meadows, and um, they are placed in a hollow square. And a hollow square is if you can just picture men standing in a square like this and then facing inward, and the leader is in the center. And a hollow square was a, a military formation in the 19th century in the United States. So they're placed in a hollow square, and then they're told what they're going to do. Mm. And again, how many are in this square? Uh, so 40, approximately 40 men come from Cedar City. There are about a dozen men who come up from Washington, Utah. So, which always spells trouble. Men always. coming up from Washington, Utah, <laughs> never ended with positivity. No St. George. So this was before St. George didn't exist yet in 57. So uh, I'm trying to post haste my... <laughs> My insults to Southern Utah. Just kidding. I love Sorry. St. George. I know. I'm just trying to infuse something. You're just being just bullying people because I'm sad. Okay, yeah. So Washington was just a brand new little settlement. Um, and again, it was the precursor to St. George. So St. George later grew out of that settlement. But St. George did not exist yet. So about a dozen men hear that something's going on at the Mountain Meadows and they decide to head up to the Mount Meadows. Um, so it, we know that between the 40 or so militiamen that came from Cedar City and the dozen or so militiamen that came from Washington, Utah, that came up from the South, that, um, and then there were a few militiamen who were living at the Mountain Meadows at a, at a ranch in the north end of the Meadows, Jacob Hamlin's ranch, um, that there were between 50 and 60 white militiamen who participated. So they get to the meadows and then the leaders, um, they have a meeting, they have a, the leaders meet about it. And the ones that have just come from Cedar cities, they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to decoy the immigrants out. We're going to tell them that we're there to save them. And we're going to convince them to give up their guns and come out of the wagon corral and start walking back towards Cedar city. And then we're going to massacre all. And so the leaders who had been at the Mountain Meadows and then some of the leaders that had come from Cedars, they say, what? And they have to have a meeting about it. They're sitting in a circle. And they're like, how, how, how can this be okay? You know, we do this. And the discussion is, well, if we let them go to California and they report in California what's happened here, then all hell's going to break loose. They're going to send an army of volunteers up from California and they're going to kill our women and children. So better theirs than ours. Mm. And they make this horrible decision. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do it. So then they place the militiamen who are there and who have come out from Cedar City and who have come up from Washington in a hollow square and they stand in the middle and they tell the men what they're going to do, what the plan is. And then they immediately march the men down to right up to um, near the where the corralled immigrants are. So the militiamen are standing there 
in a line along the trail. And one militiaman, his name is William Bateman. He walks out with a, a white rag on a stick, which symbolized, we're here to help you. The emigrants had, had raised a white rag on a stick in the middle of the um, of their corral the whole time they've been under siege, which is a sig- symbol for help, saying help us. So a militiaman walks out with a white flag. The emigrants don't shoot him. And they say, okay, yeah, we'll talk with you. Then he walks back and then John D. Lee walks out with a white flag. So I think they sent the first one, William Bateman, to see if he'd be shot by the emigrants. Who knows? But it's interesting. He walks out when they say, okay, yeah, we'll talk with you. He comes back and then John D. Lee comes back. And they let John D. Lee inside the corral. And this is about noon on September 11th. We know that because he describes the the sun being high in the sky. Mm Mm-hmm. And he meets with the emigrant leaders, and we don't know exactly what their names were at this point. Some of them have been killed in the prior attacks. But Lee says, okay, the Indians are mad at the men. They're not mad at the women or children. They're mad at the men. Um, And so, but we're going to help you. So if you turn over your guns to us, put them in the back of one of our wagons we'll bring in, we will escort the men out. You know, we will walk next next to them and escort them and protect them from further Indian attack. And the women and children, the Indians aren't mad at them, so they can just walk ahead. So we want you to, to turn over your guns and then we'll escort you safely back to the settlements. The immigrants inside, there's a debate, and one of them says, Okay, and then uh, another one says, "Don't you be a damn such a damn fool as that to turn over your guns." And one of the immigrants says, "Well, he promises peace." And the other one says, "If you turn over your guns, you're a damn fool." The immigrants are desperate. They've been inside this wagon corral for five days in the heat. If any of you have ever been in southern Utah in September, you know how hot it is. Um, they are just out of reach of the nearby spring. They're not able to get to that. They're out of water. They're so thirsty. Um, they're out of ammunition from defending themselves from these attacks. And so there's really they really had no choice but to trust. And I think that they couldn't imagine that other white men, other white people would kill them for no reason. So they're desperate, so they say, okay, we're going to do it. So John D. Lee brings in, he directs two wagons um, driven by two Mormon militiamen inside the corral. The immigrants let them inside. Uh, one is driven by a man named Sam Knight, and the other is driven by a man named Sam McMurdy. They go inside the corral, and they put all of their guns. The immigrants put all of their guns in the back of one of the wagons. Um, they also load it with truck was the word, but that means baggage um, because they really think they're going on a journey. They just didn't know how short that journey would be. Mm-hmm. And they put some of the wounded who've been wounded in earlier attacks and um, some of the youngest children, you know, they're wounded or holding some young children. So John D. Lee says, I'm going to lead these wagons out. The wagons will leave first and then the women and children will follow next. And then the men will follow last, and they're going to walk alongside the militiamen who are waiting there to escort you back to safety. 
So John Lee walks out first, leading the two wagons. And then this large group of women and children walk out next. I can't imagine what the militiamen who are standing there in the line are thinking as they see all these children mostly pass them and they know what's going to happen. Right. Um, it says that, you know, the accounts say that the militia leaders, John M. Higby, hurries them past, he's, he, he rushes them past the militiamen. And I wonder if it's because he didn't want the other militiamen standing there to think too much, mm-hmm. too much time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the women and children are walking behind the wagons. And then, and then John M. Higby, who's the leader at the Meadows, he's on horseback. There's only two men on horseback during this attack, two uh, Mormon militiamen. John M. Higby, John M. Higby is on horseback behind the women and children. And then come the men, the, the immigrant men, being escorted by an armed militiaman. There's an armed militiaman standing next to every immigrant. And then finally behind that, there's a man named Dan McFarlane, who's Isaac Haight's um, stepson. He's on horseback. So the procession starts walking. And the emigrant men, when they come up to the militiamen, they raise a cheer for them, thinking that they're there to rescue them. Right. There's also an account of one of the emigrant men. He's younger, probably maybe an older teenage boy, who turns around and goes back into the corral like, this is, I can't do this. And they have to talk him in. No, come with us. Come with us. It's going to be okay. And he suspects sabotage. Mm. So they march forward for about a mile northward in this procession. And then they come to a place on the road, on the trail, that's thickly wooded with sagebrush and oak scrub on both sides of the trail. And there Nephi Johnson is hiding with um, Paiutes and other attackers. Nephi Johnson has been told to bring uh, the number, the relatively small number of Paiutes who are there, up there for the, their role in the attack. When, they re- when the wagons get to that point and the women and children are in that thickly wooded area, John M. Higby was supposed to give the signal for the killing to begin. All the accounts, the accounts say that he waited for a quarter mile further. They keep going quarter mile past where he's supposed to give the signal. Mm. Perhaps it's because he's looking at all these women and children ahead of him. He finally turns his horse around and looks back at the men. And only then does he shout halt. And the word halt was the signal for the killing to begin. So at that point, um, the militiamen turn to the emigrant man, their left, fire on them, um, shoot them point blank in the head, the face. So you're saying like 50, 60 of these militiamen who are all standing alongside these unsuspecting immigrants. Mm-hmm. They all have yeah. a weapon on them. They're, on they're all carrying turn. their guns. Yeah. And again, they're carrying their guns and saying, oh, well, we're here to escort you. Yeah. And then just straight, point just, blank, just... Boom. Right, all at the same time. Boom, yeah, at that signal of halt. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so two militiamen are driving the wagons. John D. Lee's ahead of them. That's three. John M. Higby is on his horse between the women and the men. 
that's four. Uh, Dan McFarlane is at the very back, that's five. And so whatever is remaining, they're walking alongside mm-hmm. with, the, with the immigrant men. Okay. And then the women and children are where in that line again? They're at the, they're right behind the wagons and ahead of the men. Okay. So they, they have to hear all of this breaking out. Oh yeah. Time. So yeah. so so they're about a quarter mile. They're walking about a quarter mile ahead of their men. And so the militiamen fire on the men to their left. And then the um attackers that are hiding in the sagebrush and oak, they descend on the women and children and wipe them out. And the women and children, uh, we have one witness who describes this. His name was um, William Young, no relation to Brigham. But he's up at uh, the camp and he's watching this whole thing and he describes what he sees. Also, um, Nephi Johnson is also up on the hill. He describes seeing it. He says he doesn't participate. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but he describes what he sees as well. And their accounts line up. So when that initial firing happens, the women and children, and then they're being rushed upon and attacked, they start running back towards their men, not knowing that their men have just been murdered, like they've just been shot too. So there's like this huge scream breaks out, collective Mm -hmm. scream, and they start running for their men. Um, And they're, they're wiped out, they're hewn down and, and uh, killed with clubs and rocks, and arrows, knives, guns. John D. Lee um, and the two men in the wagons killed the wounded and that are in the back of the wagons Mm -hmm. as well. There's accounts that John D. Lee killed about five or six people. Sorry, it's really hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. This is what we were saying last time. We're listening it's to this when I set up this room, and it's brutal. You need to pause and cry, and you're saying, you know, when you're researching this, you have to close your door, and got PTSD symptoms from researching this so heavily. Oh yes, so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, so intense as it gets. So, it's yeah. So Nephi Johnson later says that the killing took about five minutes to wipe all those people out. That's insane. Just no care for the humanity. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so after the killing ends, the looting begins. And um, there's accounts of John D. Lee and other leaders going up to the bodies and looting all the bodies, you know, pulling out watches, any money, that kind of thing. The clothing is stripped from the bodies. They're and still clothing, warm before they have... Yeah. Clothing was so... Just, just clothing. You just think of the poverty of just clothing was valuable. So they stripped the bodies, um, and then Philip Klingensmith, the Bishop of Cedar City, he goes north. He goes all the way north to where the children. There's still a few children who are alive, and these are the youngest children, and um, they're screaming. They're wandering around some of them are still in their mother's arms their babies and he takes the very youngest ones and puts them in the back of the back of one of the wagons and there are accounts that any children that were that looked too big to tell tales they're murdered mm-hmm. and one girl says that they shot another girl right in front of them mm-hmm. so 17 17 children, and again, the oldest was six. 
And most of them were toddlers or babies age two and under. So they put them in the back of one of the wagons and um, Samuel Knight, who was living at the Mount Meadows at Hamlin's Ranch, he's working for Hamlin's Ranch. He and his wife had just had a baby and they're, they, they draw these the wagons north to Hamlin's Ranch where Jacob Hamlin is not there. He's in Salt Lake City being sealed to his second wife, his plural wife. They bring them to Rachel Hamlin, who is Jacob's wife. And she looks in the back of these wagons and there's these screaming, bloodied, traumatized children. 17? 17. Yeah. Uh, One girl, she's just one years old, a little Dunlap girl. Her arm, a a ball. They're called balls back there, not bullets. It was a ball, had broken um, the two uh, bones of her forearm and it's just hanging there. Another girl has been wounded uh on her ear and um and they've been suffering for five days even before the massacre if you think about mm-hmm. they're just filthy after being corralled in this stuck in this corral for five days she takes them in and um cares for them through that first night she didn't know what was going on it's horrible what was done to her and her children so she and her children her older children must have cared for those babies through the night. And uh, her adopted Shoshone son, his name is Albert, he says that the, the children cried all night. Yeah, cannot imagine the amount of trauma. Oh, everything from kids not knowing where their mommy went and like breastfeeding babies and yeah, things. I know. And every single different, I can't imagine, yeah. like infection and what you'd need to able to take care of so many children in such filthy horrible situations and all of that was kind of placed in the lap of one family yeah and then so i i assume that caroline beck that or excuse me caroline beck knight that samuel knight's wife who was living at the mountain meadows working for the hamlins samuel knight she'd just have a bait had a baby so maybe she helped nurse those those nursing babies through the night we we don't know the details we just know that the children cried all night. We have that account. That must have been horrific. Just I can't even imagine. Horrific. I can't even imagine. I guess I never really thought about very strongly is because I think when we're considering all of these different wagon trains that are leaving and I've read um, like Devil's Gate and about all the immigrants that traveled out. And yeah. sometimes it feels hard unless there's a journal or something. It feels hard to like actually know exactly who was leaving on these trails. But what I've noticed from this book is how well documented each of these sometimes yeah. quite wealthy people from Arkansas, how well documented it was exactly yeah. who left in what mm-hmm. company at what time that helps account for who exactly, exactly. was killed and then how to find um, you know, what children they left behind, who's missing to fill in the blank. I guess I never really put together that it's, I just kind of imagined like little house on the prairie and you just peace out from some, some town and nobody really knows you're gone. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, but it's quite different. Like these people had families and entire established businesses and it was a real farewell yeah. to watch them, you know, journey watch out to California yeah. or, or move back and forth and carry their stuff. Yeah. And yeah. And it's like, important to us that all of these people aren't just face, nameless, faceless victims, but, you know, we share their names and we talk about them in their lives. So they become humanized. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 
That's a beautiful part of history and storytelling and the full, like well-rounded completeness of somebody's life, not just being marked by what some really heinous things that happen to them are. But these are people who are also trying to make a better life. Way to California, searching for a better life in Mm -hmm. the nation's newest state. Mm -hmm. So, which I've always said, I can't. Number one reason Brigham Young to me. For me, isn't a prophet? Is he said this is the place <laughs> when it was like California is available? <laughs> Technically, are you just not wanting to be carried in your cart anymore? Like, yeah. Did you hear of Santa Monica yet? So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, they were looking for total isolation where they can be a- away from all other white people. I think but- he was just tired after he got out of Immigration <laughs> Canyon. Well, he did have mountain fever. <laughs> he was sick. What's that mean? Mountain fever is, um, I think it's the same as malaria. Oh, but it's like a, t- a tick-borne disease. Mm. Yeah. Poor but, Brigham. But we digress. We digress. poor, poor Brigham. You've spoken so eloquently from your heart, but I just wanted you to speak to why it's so important to tell this story and or what you want people to concentrate on when we're telling this. Yeah, story. what what I hope comes of it. Yeah, and um, as I've repeatedly said with you a few times already. It's important to study these difficult parts of our history, whether it's our nation's history, our religion's history, our state's history, so that we can learn from the mistakes of the past and not repeat them. And so I hope readers will come away despising the evil of what was done, despising these horrific acts, despising murder, but not despising anyone who's alive today, who's not responsible for it, not despising Mormons in general or Latter-day Saints in general because of these these um, acts of the past. Um, I think it's possible to do both, Mm -hmm. to be able to separate that. Yeah, that's really well put. And as we talk more about what came out after this massacre and come to find out what role the church played and what leaders did what, and then the legacy all of this happening yeah. up until the present day and what the LDS church was made aware of and what they weren't, what they apologized for and all of the other things that I think people are going to be interested in yeah. of what does the modern LDS church that's like run by, you know, president Nelson right now, how does that connect to this and what yeah. more could church leaders or Mormons do? Because I totally yeah. agree that it's not the individual like member of the church. Between 50 and 60 militiamen who participated in this, whose names we know, 50 and 60? Between 50 and 60, yeah. Whose names we, we know, know and yeah. that so many people are like, my grand, great-great-grandfather was like yeah. Joseph Smith's bodyguard, and they all had a story about <laughs> some pioneer heritage yeah, or something. Yeah, happy stories or and whatever. At least but 50 or 60 people, you know how well, those think genealogies about it. work. Exactly. And many a of lot these, of people. Many of these men were polygamous. Yeah. John D. Lee alone has, I mean, this was years ago. He had over 100,000 descendants. Probably it's up to over 200,000 descendants. So one of these 50 to 60 men has that many descendants. So I kind of ballparked it. There were probably more than a million people alive today whose ancestors participated in this, and we just don't know. We just don't know their names. Incidentally, I found out that my great-great-great-grandfather was one of those men. I found this out You're kidding. years into working on this project. Years into working out, you Looking recognized. Looking at the genealogy I wasn't aware of. Yeah. And this is interesting. 
is my friend Sandra Tanner. Her great 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 grandpa also was one among those twelve men. So <laughs> ancestors together went yeah. to the mountain meadows. And you know who else? Who else? Who uh, did the Mormon Stories episode with you? Rebecca Biblioteca. Oh, yes, yes. Her ancestor came from Cedar City. I, Ira Allen. Oh, yeah, I was oh. thinking I was so unique. Like, what a coincidence. I happen to be a descendant. But then um, I've met so many people as I've shared this work. I've had so many people come out of the woodwork um, to me, either at events where I'm speaking or on social media and say, I just learned I'm a descendant of a perpetrator. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I started doing the math and I thought, there are a lot of us. Um, and they all have Mormon X Mormon podcasts or they're involved <laughs> in this space. Yeah. Except for me, I'm clean. Yeah. So I kind of thought I was just, holy crap. yeah. So be careful about looking at your genealogy. <laughs> yeah. Mormon so. church. You really encourage genealogy. I am doing it. <laughs> I am the descendant of a and Mount Meadows massacre perpetrator. Let's just say murderer. Let's just, yeah. Just- Sure, murderer, perpetrator, it all. Are, it all are we allergic to saying too many M's after we say Mountain Meadows Massacre murders? <laughs> it is a lot of M's. It's a lot of alliteration. All right, genealogy, I'm doing it, and I'm not happy about the yeah. results that I find. Yeah, if people want to see the full list, they'll they'll need to look at um, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, the first volume in the series, and in the appendices. We have the names of all of the militiamen known to have participated. We also have the names of all of the immigrants known to have been in the company. Mm. Um, and so they can look at those appendices and, and look at those names. Holy moly. And I know that just as like a listener and a person who's interested in history and all of these things, like how profound of a work that must have been to compile that. But I can only yeah. imagine for the mm-hmm. the descendants how important that is to be able to descendants to, of victims. Yeah, descendants of Absolutely. victims to be able to put those pieces together. Yeah. I feel like their names are honored. So that yeah. is incredible. That's huge. Yeah. I hope these books honor them. Wow. The victims by by telling their story. You know, they're gone. We can't bring them back. But telling their story, making sure they're never forgotten. That's the best way we can honor them today. That and protecting the land where they're in. Do you mind if I read some quotes from the book? Mm -hmm. So tell me what this is going on here. So after the militia men marched the company for a distance, the immigrant men were all shot dead at the first fire, Lee said, with the exception of a few. He did not say how the women and children were killed, and so Shirts later asked Indians, the women and children were knocked down with stones, clubs, and gun barrels, they told him. Oh, Annie Hogue? Hogue. Yeah, she was living in Harmony where John D. Lee lived, and she reports what John D. Lee is telling the congregation. Initially, he's bragging about what's happened mm. before Brigham Young's letter arrives. So now you see why I wanted to leave on this kind of cliffhanger of yeah. the ways that they were initially hyping up what they were doing yeah it's to then try to blame it on everything but themselves including and and i should say that um the Paiute people were victims in this as well because their plan from the beginning was to blame all of this on the indians that they were they were conned into kind of doing it in the first place to participating yeah and then Mm -hmm. not knowing that once they participated they'd be blamed for it exactly yeah, it's and 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 the Paiute people have had to carry that burden and be blamed for it for generations as well. That's mm-hmm. another thing that we really try to clear up with this book is make it clear that this was 
orchestrated, planned, and largely carried out by white men. And so the blame, the focus needs to be on them. Mm-hmm. And I think this is obviously just so heartbreaking in a million different ways, but I also just like to bring things back to our current day and age and infuse a little bit of humor in any way that I can. So what you just described, like if you've ever been in a relationship with a narcissist who coaxes <laughs> you into things and then blames you for it, <laughs> you would understand the frustration to a small degree that yeah. is going on in this scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right, right on girl. High five. Okay. Um, so according to Hoag's recollection, Lee told his congregation about encountering an immigrant man holding his baby. Should yeah. I read this? You go. Okay. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, all right. Okay. Um, he let that child, Lee demanded. The immigrant seemed to know Lee and his beliefs. No, Lee, he replied, I recognize you and you know the penalty of shedding innocent blood. If Lee was going to shoot, the man said, Lee would have to kill the child too and bear the consequences. The Bible condemned those who shed innocent blood, meaning those who were blameless and Latter-day Saints taught that shedders of innocent blood forfeited their chance to enter the highest heaven. Lee gave the immigrant another chance to hand over the baby, but he refused. Then Lee told the congregation, it was my turn to shoot. We will continue mm-hmm. next time on yeah, more of that. Of the, one of the most story stories of all time. So I think next time we can talk about like what happens immediately after. Okay. burials and then going back and like at first they're all rah-rah to their congregations and, <laughs> and then young's letter arrives and the, they're like oh whoops and then they start covering it up and, and the blame gets passed around to like a hot potato to the indians yeah mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's why i say they're victims too yes well you did such insanely and thorough <laughs> research on such a heartbreaking topic, yeah. harrowing mm-hmm. topic mm-hmm. so i can't thank you enough barbara for spending time with me and telling the story just sure. something so difficult to talk about but yeah. you know what kept me going yeah was i was doing this for the victims mm-hmm. i so wanted to get in a time machine and go back and be able to stop what was happening but of course we can't and uh, it was tearing me up inside. I could do nothing for those people. But then when I started to meet their descendants, I realized there was something I could do for them. And that was their descendants told me, you can tell the truth about what happened to them and make sure they're not forgotten. So that's what kept me going through how hard it was to work on this project for 18 years mm-hmm. was this is a service I could do for those people. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I thank you too for thank you. putting your time, mind, effort, soul into something that means so much to the descendants, means so much to just this Mormon, post-Mormon community, American, indigenous people. I'm so sure there's just so many people who are just three cheers for Barbara. Thanks. I hope we can just all learn from it Mm -hmm. and be better after learning of it. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah. Thank you, Kara. Really appreciate this opportunity to talk so much about it and share the story far and wide. I'm in it with you, sister. Thank you for everybody who listens to the Mormon History Hoedown, who supports the Nuance Ho YouTube channel, patreon.com slash Nuance Ho over at Hoedown. We just hit 400 residents of Hoedown over there. And you can get all of this content ad-free and a bunch of other really fun perks. Apple, Spotify, leave a good review. That would really mean a lot. I'm giving you a lot of tasks right now. I hope that you're writing them down. Dun-dun-dun, there's at least 10. But the last thing you need to know is... Give yourself a hug. Love you so much. 